Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. Good morning, City Bridge Community Church. Uh, My name is Derek Matthews. I get to serve here in the role as Director of Teaching Ministries. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, you're gonna be hearing that a lot over the next four weeks uh, because we are diving into a series called Fully Alive, Finding Life in the One That Conquered the Grave. And so the hope of this series is that we would do just that, that we would find life in Christ alone, find life in the author of life. And as you scan through your Bible, what you'll find is that 1 Corinthians 15 is the most clear, concise theology that the Apostle Paul has about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel message of Jesus Christ and its impact on our daily life. And so what we're gonna do over these next four weeks, all the way leading into Easter, is to dive into this one chapter of scripture. And so get familiar with 1 Corinthians 15. So as we jump in, it's really helpful to have some context over kind of what's happening in the church of Corinth. And so the apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Corinthians, is engaging with the church of Corinth. He's actually there for three years, one of the longest areas that he was with within a local church. But then he leaves and things get weird, like really weird. And so he writes a letter because he's been with this group of people and he loves this group of people and he has this fond affection for this group of people and he sees that they're not living the life that God would have for him. And so he writes a letter correcting them. And so if you think Corinthians, think correction. See what I did there? Lock that one in. It's gold. So... In this time, if you just kind of scan through 1 Corinthians, what you're going to see is uh, a mess. You're going to see divisions within the church. People dividing over which teacher they liked. Lawsuits that were being brought from believer to believer. Marriages falling apart and nobody seems to care about it. Sexual perversion that's happening within the church and nobody's speaking into it. Idol worship, people using their gifts to make much of themselves. The role of men and women being blurred because of the culture around them. And the church service looking a lot more pagan. And Christian. And so simply put, these people look a lot more like the cultural around them than Christ who has saved them. And so they run back to their old sins, their old habits, because they don't see the implications of the gospel message on their life. And they fall into the very same trap that many of us do. They begin to drift. As you see throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, when they drift, it always leads to destruction because if God is the author of life, then to drift away from him is only to lead to death. And so they kind of bought into their mindset of this idea that I think is pretty prevalent in our culture today, which is this, that I will believe in Jesus so I have somebody to take care of me when I retire. I will believe in Jesus so I'll have someone to take care of me in eternity, in heaven. And so we got this like fire insurance mentality, don't we? And the culture we kind of experience. And so believe in the gospel and then kind of do your own thing until heaven comes. And I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, believing in Christ solely to go to heaven is like getting married just to have someone look after you when you retire. Now, those would be really weird wedding vows, 
Like my wife and I are coming up on 12 years and it'll be really weird if, you know, for better or worse, for in sickness and health. And then afterwards, when we said, I do, I was like, okay, see you in like 40 years. This has been fun, but I'll see you in about four decades. Like that's weird because there's something more to marriage than having someone look after you when you retire. And there's something more to the Christian life than just having someone look after you for eternity. God wants more for you. He wants you to be fully alive. And he knows that when we drift, when we're not focused in on who God is and what he's done for us and finding life in the one who conquered the death, he knows that we drift and we will always drift to our own demise. And Jesus wants us to have life and life abundantly. Jesus says in John 10, 10, he says, the thief comes to do one thing, to steal, to kill, to destroy. He wants to pull you away from the author of life. But then he says, I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. And so we often drift and what Paul was doing in the midst of all of this kind of chaos, in the midst of all this correction, in the midst of all this darkness, he puts a diamond called the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because he wants to fix their gaze back upon Jesus, who he is and what he's done, because he knows that when we do that, we find life in him, not just for eternity, but in the here and now. And so City Bridge, are you stuck? Are you drifting? Maybe it's just been for a day or a week, or maybe it's been a month. Maybe it's been a year. Maybe you feel like you've plateaued in the Christian life, or maybe you, like me years ago, just kind of looked around and was just so trying to earn God's smile that I wouldn't wish Christianity on anyone because I had fixed my gaze, not upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, but my own ways of trying to please God on my own accord. Or maybe you're getting after it with Jesus and you just go, the more I taste of him, the more I want of him, the more his joy and his peace and his satisfaction, welcome to 1 Corinthians 15. And so we're gonna spend the next couple of weeks exploring this reality of how do we find life in the one who conquered the grave because he wants you to be fully alive. And so we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians 15 verses one through 11 this morning and we're just gonna get reminded a bit about this gospel message for believers, for unbelievers, we need to hear this news. And so as we dive in, we're gonna see kind of these three movements that Paul's unpacking for us. We're gonna see the purpose of the gospel. Why is it there? Why is it good news? And what do we do with it? But then we're gonna see the proof of the gospel. If this is the message that matters, how do we know that this is the news that it's worth believing? And then finally, when we understand the purpose of the gospel and the proof of the gospel, we can see the power of the gospel explode in our lives. And so that's what Paul's doing in those first 11 verses. And that's what we're gonna do this morning. And so the first thing we're gonna see is the purpose of the gospel. Why is it here? And what do we do with this good news? In the first two verses, Paul says it this way. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, I would remind you, sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand in, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And so the key word in this is the word gospel. The Greek here is euangelion. E-U means good. And gelion is where we get the word angel or messenger. It means a good message, a good news. And so you combine these two realities, good and news, and all of a sudden we get gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not advice to be followed. It's news to be believed in. 
And when you believe in that, it impacts every aspect of your life. Now, what's interesting is that this word is not unique to the Bible. You see, throughout this culture and in this time period, what you saw was people would actually use the word euangelion quite a bit, gospel quite a bit, but it was used for three predominant purposes. One was to declare that a new king had come, and that was good news. The second was that your king had conquered, had gone out to a battle, had weighed war against your enemy, and has won, and so someone would come back into the town and preach the good news that your king had just conquered. And then lastly, that a new kingdom was being established and you were being invited into it. And why I love what Paul does here is he takes those three ideas that were culturally normative and he goes, you know what? That's exactly what Jesus is doing. That's exactly the good news of Jesus Christ. But there is a new king and it's the God of the universe become man to live a life that you cannot. All of us have tried to set up our own little kingdoms here on earth, kind of done our own thing. And all that does when we set ourselves up to be our own God and our own king, it always leads to destruction. And you can just think back on your own life and your own journey and testify to that. But a new king has come and that king is good and he loves you and he's for you. And it's worth linking your life under his reign. But then secondly, that king has conquered. Not only did Jesus live a perfect life that we could not, we, he died the death that we deserve. He went to the cross for us. The thing that would doom us all, which is sin and death. And the sting of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what Romans 6.23 says. And so Jesus went and went toe to toe with what our ultimate enemy was. And our ultimate enemy is sin and death. And he went to the cross on our behalf and he died and it looked like defeat. But then three days later, he conquered death itself. Death was defeated because the new king had come and the new king has conquered. And that king is now going around inviting others into his kingdom. The primary message of Jesus as you flip through your gospels is repent. Turn away from anything that's keeping you from an abiding relationship with me. Turn away from the world, the flesh, and the devil that is keeping you away from knowing me and knowing my goodness and knowing my grace and knowing my gospel and repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's amongst you and I'm inviting you into it. As Ephesians 2 says, by grace, through faith, you don't earn your way into this kingdom. You're invited in by the king who's made a way for you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And this is the good news that we not only receive, but we respond to. It says that this is the good news that I preach to you, that you receive, you trust in, you believe upon. But then you don't stop there. It says now you're standing in it. You have the firm foundation of the good news of Jesus Christ that you're standing in. You're in this new kingdom. But then it says you are being saved by it. So yes, you have been saved in the past when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Whoever confesses with his mouth, Romans 10 says, whoever confesses with his mouth and believes in its heart that Jesus Christ is Lord will be saved. You have been saved. But as you focus in on this gospel message, and as you walk with this king and his kingdom that he is establishing, 
You are being sanctified, being made more and more like this king who loves you and laid down his life for you. And this only happens when we hold fast to the word in which Paul, the gospel, he preached to you. When we do this, we find that John 10, 10 promise to be fully alive because we're actually doing what we've been made for. But when we don't, it says that you believed in vain. And that can mean a couple of things. That can either mean that the object of your belief was not the gospel, was not Jesus. And so I don't care how strongly you believe in something. If it's not Jesus and his person and his work, who he is and what he's done for you, then that's vanity. That doesn't do anything for you. It could also mean that you're not living out the gospel message in your life on a daily basis. And so you might've received it, but you're not standing in it. You're not being saved by it. You're not seeing your lives being transformed by it because you're not holding fast to it. You believed in Jesus for some fire insurance, congratulations. But God wants more for you. He wants you to be fully alive. He wants you to be fully alive. It's so easy to drift, isn't it? Like I know for me, it, it can be like, I mean, I would, if I'm generous, I say a day, it can be like minutes, right? Spending time in God's word, thinking about the gospel message, and then I go and all of a sudden, like, I, I, like even this past weekend, like I began to be like irritable and frustrated and short. And all of a sudden these fears begin to crop up and this anxiety begins to crop up and this control begins to crop up and I just, I'm drifting. And left unchecked, and I've seen this in my life, left unchecked, it has led me to the most and the hardest self-inflicted pain in my story. Because I'm drifting away from the author of life and the only thing that's left is hurt, pain, and it's self-inflicted. And this is what was happening to the Corinth church, and I think this might be happening to a lot of us in here. And maybe it's been a day, maybe it's been a week, maybe it's been a month, maybe it's been a year, but have you drifted? Paul is pulling our minds back to this gospel message, to this good news. And so it's for unbelievers, yes, to receive, to be saved, but it's for believers to stand in, to be saved by it, to hold fast to it, unless you believed in vain. Hebrews would say it this way, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, the gospel, lest we drift away from it. Because when we drift away from it, it always leads to hurt and pain. And so I don't know where you drift, but I know that that is human nature, prone to wonder, Lord, we feel, feel it, prone to leave this God I love. There's something in us that wants our own demise and Jesus is calling us to hold fast to him. And so that's the purpose of the gospel. That's the purpose of the gospel, to receive, but then also to respond to. And so if this is the message that we are to build our life upon, if this is the message that should consume our thinking constantly throughout the day, if this is the message, the good news that matters the most, it, then how do we know it's true? How do we know this is real? How do we know this isn't just a fable that's been told and passed down from generation to generation? How is this just not something that we've been told as kids growing up to make us good little moral boys and girls? How do we know this is the message that matters? Well, that's where Paul goes, no, goes next. 
with the proof of the gospel, the proof of this good news. And he says it right here in verse three. He says, for I deliver to you what is of first importance. That's the word primus, the most primary important news in human history. Kind of a big deal, all right? What is it, Paul? He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he also appeared to Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, and then to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and he, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And so watch this. In this passage, we see the reality of the resurrection, the proof of the resurrection. What Paul is doing here is he's actually presenting two ideas. He's presenting the reality that Christ died for our sins, which was in accordance with the scripture. It was in line with what God was doing throughout the entire Old Testament and prophesied towards calling his shot before it happened. But then also that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, calling a shot before it happened. This is actually linguistically the only two things that he's arguing here, but then what he does is he validates those realities by what else he says. He says that he was buried. So the reality that he was buried proves the fact that he died. You don't bury someone who's alive. Everyone validated that Jesus in fact died on the cross. His allies and his enemies validated that moment. And yet what validates the fact that he rose was that he appeared that he appeared. You see, the reality of the resurrection engages your mind. You have to do something with the historic fact that Jesus really did die. He did it publicly and he really did rise. He did it publicly. You have to reconcile and wrestle with not some fable, not some story, but God has rooted our faith in historic, objective reality. And that reality confronts your mind. And so for those of you in here who are Christians, stay tuned, tune in right now. Because I'm about to share with you a helpful way that proves the reality of the resurrection. And for those of you in here that aren't, tune in. Because you have to wrestle with this. So how do we know that Jesus really did die and really did it raise from the grave? Well, first up, we see an honorable burial. The majority of individuals that were crucified on the cross were either um, left up there so that wolves and dogs could come after them and just kind of destroy their bodies, or they were taken off and thrown into a mass grave and burned. But Jesus, we know where he was laid, when he was laid there, whose tomb it was. It was Joseph of Arimathea, read it in John 20. We know that, they, that, that a, a stone was put in front of it so that nobody could come in and enter it. And we know that guards, centurion warriors were put out front to guard anyone trying to get into it. And so he had this honorable burial, but then three days later, we see that the tomb was in fact empty. There was an empty tomb. Jesus' allies, his followers, and his enemies both had to reconcile that three days later, the tomb was empty. And what I love is if you joined us this past week in, in the reading plan that's on our app, it said in Acts 2 and Acts 4 that when Peter gets up and preaches, this is what he points to. He goes, all your little spiritual gurus, all the little people you're kind of linking your life under, guess what? I can go show you their bones. Because they died and they didn't. That was their end. 
not Jesus. Prove to me, thanks David. (laughs) Prove to me. That was their challenge. Prove to me. And they couldn't because the grave was empty. And then he begins to appear. We saw it in this passage. We saw it in the reading plan this week that Jesus appeared to over 500 individuals. And if you read 1 Corinthians, Paul makes it very clear. 500 individuals, over 500 individuals at the same time, not collective hallucination, but at the same time, most of who, by the way, while Paul was writing this, are still alive. So if you doubt me, go and talk to the small town that saw Jesus. More than the people that are in this room right now collectively saw that man died on the cross and then that man is walking around. That is the appearances of Jesus. And then you see the rise of Christianity. You see that overnight, these individuals that were terrified and alone and scattered away from Jesus, all of a sudden they are bold and they are getting after it for Jesus. And so many of them died horrific deaths and you don't die for a lie. And so there was the rise of Christianity overnight and then finally traditions change. This group of people, the Jews, who were the most unlikely to change anything that they had ever done, they had been practicing these things for over a millennium, overnight, go, we're not doing the sacrificial system anymore. Jesus is our sacrifice. We're not celebrating Sabbath on Saturday, we're celebrating on Sunday because that's when Jesus rose. And so we celebrate these things and we see this. And if you can spell, then you know that this is the heart of God. That God wants you to know without a shadow of doubt, not blind faith, but objective historic reality. That man died and he did not stay dead. Every other world religion is some guy goes into the woods, falls into a trance, comes out and says, you follow me and this is how you should live your life. This is objective historic reality that you have to wrestle with because the reality of the resurrection confronts your mind. But the beauty is that the reason for the resurrection, it confronts your heart. Four times in here, Jesus appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. He came back. This is the heart of God. He wants to be with his people. He wants to be with his people and death itself could not hold him back from coming after you, from coming back for you because he's coming for you and he loves you. So many of us have these bad images in our mind about who God is, and I don't know what that is for you, but some of you go, man, God feels so distant from here, from me. The gospel shows us that our God left heaven to come to earth, to become near to you. He is with us always, that's his heart. Some of you have this idea of God of, you know, like God, you know, Jesus is just my homeboy. Um, and he's just kind of my co-pilot in life. He doesn't really care about you know, what I do. He just wants me to be happy. The gospel shows us a God that is so holy that sin cannot be in his presence. And in order for his people to be in his presence, he must do something about sin without destroying us in the process. Maybe for you, you think God, 
because he knows all of your sin and knows all your junk and knows all your failures. He goes, man, God wouldn't want anything to do with me. And the gospel shows us a God who not just came for you, but conquered for you and took your sin upon the cross on your behalf. You might think, man, I don't know if God really wants me. The gospel shows us a God that wouldn't even let death keep him from you. And so what the gospel tells us and what God is telling us here is this, if there is anything keeping me, God, from my people, I will do something about it. If it's distance, then I'll cross it. If it's sin and death, then I'll take it upon myself. And if it's death, then I will defeat it. Because that is our God. And that is the God who loves you. And any thought you have in your mind that is not that is demonic. It's from hell. Our God loves us. And you rest in that love and you live in that love. There's a story that I heard years ago of an earthquake that, that hit East Asia and it collapsed a bunch of buildings, but one of the buildings that collapsed was this school, this elementary school, a bunch of kids trapped in this building. And so the entire town rallied and, and began to excavate all that, began to pull all the debris out and, and minutes became hours and hours became days. And individuals begin to kind of lose hope that the kids were even still alive. And some people actually stopped the excavation except for one guy, the dad of one of the kids in that classroom. No sleep, no rest, no food, just a father's love coming after his kid. And when he pulled away the final stone, he saw his boy. All of his friends were around him and they had been trapped within their classroom and it hadn't collapsed upon him. And that kid looks back and goes, dad, is that you? And then the kid, according to the story, looked around and goes, see, I told you he would come. And that kid was saved because of the love of his father. What gave that kid courage in the midst of chaos? What gave that kid confidence when all around him was dark. It was not blind faith. It was known love that gave him courage. That's our God. If you ever doubt the love that God has for you and the life that God wants for you, then you look no further than the final stone that was removed because you see the heart of God he came for you and he loves you. Love doesn't stand still. Love moves, love sacrifices, love saves. And so you look to the father who sent the son, that is your proof. The proof of the gospel, the reality of it does confront your mind, you have to deal with it, but the reason confronts your heart. There's a God who loves you and will stop at nothing to get to you. And when you grab that, it changes everything. It changes everything. Like these guys that are listed here, these aren't great guys. <laughs> like Cephas, Peter, the night that Jesus was betrayed, you know what he did? He denied him three times. And then Jesus appears for him. 
And then all of a sudden in Acts 2 and Acts 4, you see Peter go from being terrified to being wildly courageous. Why? Because Jesus came back for him. You see the 12, the apostles, man, they abandoned Jesus. But then Jesus returned for him. And all of a sudden they became the the pillars of the early church. You see James, who was Jesus' half-brother, mocking Jesus growing up. You think you're the son of God? I've seen how you clean your room. You know, like, who's mocking him. Then all of a sudden, his older brother returns from the grave and he had to reconcile with that reality. And James becomes one of the pillars of the early church. Stay tuned for our James series that's coming up in a month. And then Paul, you read it in Acts 9, man, he was actively angrily killing Christians. And Jesus appeared for him. And all of a sudden what happened in Paul's life is he began to see the purpose of this good news. And he began to see the proof of it. I am seeing the guy who I saw die. And I gotta do something with that. And the power of God as he trusts in this new king begins to be unleashed in his life. And that's what we see next, the power of the gospel. Do you know that the same power, if you trust in Christ, the same power that conquered the grave, according to Romans, lives in you? Like like it lives in you. And if that power conquered the grave, then what else can it conquer in your life? Well, Paul tells us, He says in verse nine, he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. And so in this little passage, I see six different ways the power of God began to be unleashed in Paul's life. You wanna see them? First one is that the gospel changed how you see God. Three times in this passage, he says, grace Grace, grace, that when God looks at me, he's not angry at me. He's not against me. He's for me. He's lavished his grace upon me. And so again, I don't know what you think about when you think about God, but our relationship with God is predicated on this word, his grace towards us, his kindness towards us that we have not earned. And all of a sudden he begins to see, okay, my God is for me and there's nothing that can stop that. So what can man do to me? All you can do, the most you can do is kill me and I will rise with him. So it changes the way he sees God, but then it changes the way you begin to see yourself. Do you notice this? He says, for I'm the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle. There's no pretense here. There's no boasting here. There's no pride, there's no insecurity. There's just a man that looks up and sees God and then looks in the mirror and realizes the more he sees the glory and the honor and the majesty of God, the more he looks at himself and goes, man, I have fallen short. And instead of beating himself over that, all he does is recognize that the more glorious God is, And the more sinful I see myself, the bigger the cross looks. 
And so it changes the way you see yourself, but then it also changes the way you share your sins. Like you see how specific he is? He's not hiding anything. He's not holding back the last 2%. He's going, guys, I persecuted the church. Like I actively tried to kill Christians. He's not holding anything back. He's actively sharing. But look, who you see today is only by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not because I cleaned myself up. It's not because I looked better. It's because I was dead and Jesus made me fully alive. It changes how you share your sins, but then it also changes how you get on missions. It says his grace towards me was not in vain, but rather I worked out what was worked into me. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I got to work to live out this gospel in my life. I got on mission, aligned up with what God would have for me. And then he says that the gospel changes how you rely on Jesus. Oh, this isn't me working hard just to prove that I'm a good guy. It's the grace of God that was within me. That's what was working. And so not only am I saved by grace, not only is grace like the fire of your salvation, it's the fuel for your service. I'm relying on that grace. I'm relying on that gospel. And then finally, it changes how you share your faith. He goes, look, whether it was they or I, so we preached and so you believed. I'm sharing this with everyone because everyone needs to know that a new king has come and that king has conquered. And that king is inviting us into his presence and into his kingdom. I had a fun time this week. I asked some of my friends that I get to run with around here, hey, how has the gospel impacted, not just your eternity, but how has it impacted your today? like right now. I just wanna share with you a couple of them and I'll probably share some of these as, as we go through the series, but one individual, a region leader, a husband, a father, a worker says, because of the resurrection, I know that he will finish in me the good work that he started and that I'm this new creation and not the sum of my sin. You ever feel like the sum of your sin? The resurrection shows you that that is not how God sees you. Another friend of mine, a father in his 20s says, the resurrection gives me freedom, freedom from my sin that allows me to receive the grace of God in the midst of my imperfections and shortcomings. Another friend of mine, another region leader, business owner, father, husband says, the impact of the resurrection in my life has been that there is nothing in my past that can't be redeemed by the cross. And that love has motivated me to pursue him today because I want more of him. A mother of three is the leader of, within our women's equipping circle. She said, for me, the resurrection redeems the mundane. <laughs> How much of life do you think just feels mundane, right? But she read this chapter in verse 15, or chapter 15, verses 58 says, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Another friend of mine, a, a girl in her 20s said this, she said, the resurrection gives me freedom to experience the joy that life and life that Christ has come. He has made a way for me to have joy and not just be crippled by it, my anxieties and fears. The gospel is fuel to the fire of your salvation. And so for me, I know uh, even the last thing that he said, the gospel changes how you share your faith. I know that I can kind of get around Christians a lot just in my role and, and whatnot. And, and what the gospel has done, even for me these last few weeks is, you know, I'm in this passage, I'm thinking about it, I'm preparing for this moment. And, and all of a sudden, like I just begin to look up and see people differently. Like I was in the checkout line at Lowe's and um, I'm typically a Home Depot guy. So for those of you that care about the uh, rivalry, um, 
but I was in the checkout line at Lowe's um, because I think God wanted me to interact with the woman that was checking me out. Um, I, and so instead of having my AirPods in or listening to the next thing, I just had those out and I just got to engage with her. Hey, how's your day? And she opened up and she just said, hey, it's been a hard week. I actually fell last night and I don't know if I have a concussion. And I just go, hey, I know this, this might sound weird, but I just, I'm a Christian and I would love to pray for you right now. And so there I am praying in Lowe's uh, with this woman and inviting her uh, to, to not just come and see our, our building, but to come and meet our Jesus. A couple days later, I was in the drive-through line, just kind of waiting for my, my coffee. And then it was that weird moment where like, you've given them your, your money and you're waiting for them to finish your order. So the windows are down and you're just kind of like there. And I was just like, so how was your day? Um, you know, going and, and in that moment, all of a sudden, uh, I'm engaging with her. She's a young adult. And so I go, hey, we have a young adult ministry uh, here. We'd love for you to come and, and to, to just be welcomed and be loved by some people that are following after Jesus. A couple days later, I saw a grown man uh, playing with an RC toy and I just figured we'd be friends. And so I engaged with him. <laughs> and uh, I walked over to him and I just struck up a conversation and just see how his life was. And so the gospel begins to fuel our faith. Um, so it's not just something we receive, it's something we respond to. And the same power that conquered the grave lives in you as a believer. And so what do we do with all of this? Well, let's go back to the first verse. To the believer in the room, Paul is calling us to remember the gospel, to find ways to roll it through your mind throughout the day, lest we drift lest we move away from the central message, the person and work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Because left unchecked, we will run away. We will drift. And that will always go to destruction. And so I encourage you, find ways, find ways to remember the gospel message on a constant reality in your life. Because you don't just receive it, you respond to it. And you do that by remembering it. But for those of you in here that haven't trusted Christ, wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Paul tells us to receive this gospel. I just wanna be very clear. You are not here by chance right now. There is a God who loves you and a God who is for you and a God who has made a way for you to come and to have life and life abundantly. And so he has orchestrated your life to be in a moment right now to have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And Romans 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. And so the invitation to you is to know this God. And you can't earn it, you can only receive it. And so for all of us, wherever we're at in our journey, I love what Tim Keller says about what the gospel is says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believed. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hoped. That's the message that matters. That's what you link your life up to. And so if you're a believer, remember it. And if you're not, receive it. And let's find life in the one who conquered death. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. 
To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.